And so let's turn our attention today to Matthew chapter 9. And we're going to read this very well-known passage at the very end of this chapter. Uh, So far in Matthew's gospel, we have seen the beginning of Jesus' Galilean ministry. Uh, It's been encapsulated in Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And then we have a summary of his ministry for us right here in Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 35. Hear now the word of the Lord. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, and the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Amen. And may God bless to us this reading of his holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Well, there are many ways to describe Jesus Christ. He is a humble servant, an anointed prophet, a faithful high priest, and an exalted king. There are many ways that we describe Jesus Christ, adjectives that we place on his person to describe aspects about his office and ministry. And we know that all these titles portray something about his work for us as the only mediator between God and his people. So he's prophet, priest, king. You understand as a prophet, Jesus declares the word of God to us. As a priest... He dies for us, and He intercedes for us before the Heavenly Father. And then as King, He rules and reigns over us in righteousness. He is the way, the the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. So these names of Jesus describe various aspects of his work for us as our Lord, as our mediator. But perhaps the best description that conveys not the office of Jesus, but the heart of Jesus, is this little word, compassion. When you think of Jesus, do you think of him as a compassionate Savior? Or is he distant? Is he removed? Is he aloof? Is he distant from the lives of the people he is called to represent? Or is he near? Is he a kind, forbearing, merciful Savior? 
You see, in the incarnation, the Son of God not only took upon Himself human flesh, He also took upon Himself human feelings. You see, we often relate to Jesus as we might relate to a superhero. Right? We, we recognize in the incarnation the Son of God became a human. Right? He became something he was not, a man, and yet remained what he always was, the second person of the Trinity. And yet somehow we think that the Son of God in human flesh is unable to relate to our experiences. Because we say, well, he was the Son of God. And when we see him face temptation, when we see him pursue faithfulness, when we see him labor in prayer, we say, well, that's because he was the Son of God. And yet, you understand, say in Matthew 4, when Jesus is tempted by the evil one, he was not relying on his divinity as he was resisting the evil one. But he relied on the same resources that you and I have, the Holy Spirit and prayer before his heavenly Father, as he resisted the onslaught of attacks from the evil one. You see, Jesus not only assumed human flesh, but he took on himself human feelings. As the old church fathers would say, what is unassumed cannot be redeemed. If he is going to be your redeemer, he had to become fully man, including in the realm of human emotions. This precious truth is brilliantly expounded by the old Princeton theologian, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, B.B. Warfield. And Warfield wrote this extraordinary little essay on the emotional life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Warfield is a staunch Calvinist. So if you think we're being a little too touchy-feely this morning, I assure you, Warfield was a stout, reformed theologian. And yet he understood the importance of talking about the Savior's emotional life in serving as your Redeemer. And so Warfield looks at every single place in the Gospels where the writers ascribe a human emotion to Jesus. I suspect you can find it somewhere uh, online. It's in a number of the collected essays of Warfield that you can find that's been published by PNR as well. But Warfield says this, It belongs to the truth of our Lord's humanity that he was subject to all sinless human emotions. It belongs to the truth of our Lord's humanity that he was subject to all sinless human emotions. You see, while we may not think of Jesus possessing feelings, a moment's reflection will help us see that the Bible frequently describes the emotional depth that Jesus experienced. 
And so, for example, in Luke chapter 10, verse 21, Jesus prays to his heavenly Father because of the joy and exuberance he experienced in the Holy Spirit. You will remember in Luke 10, the disciples had been out two by two, and they'd done a gangbuster job, and as a result of their missions report, Jesus has joy in his heart, in the Holy Spirit, before his Father, because of the good work his disciples were doing. Our Work in gospel ministry is an occasion for the Savior to experience joy before his heavenly Father. In Mark 10, verse 14, Jesus is indignant that the disciples hindered little children from coming to him. He's outraged. There is righteous anger when even his disciples hinder little ones from coming to Christ. You know that Jesus has never rejected anyone who comes to him in faith and repentance. How dare we as the people of God put obstacles before others, right? We welcome people with open arms as we express the heart of Jesus for those who do not know him, especially the little ones. Likewise, in John 10, verse 33, Jesus weeps. He weeps of the grave of his friend, Lazarus. He knew full well was about to come in the resurrection. And yet he looked to the grave. And all that death brings... And he wept. You know, death is a hollowing of a soul. It represents loss beyond expression. And it's right to look into the grave of a loved one and weep. Yes, as Christians, we believe in the resurrection. And yes, we grieve as those who are not without hope because of the resurrection. And yet, Christians, we still grieve. It's right. Stoicism is not a proper response when we face death. We think the Calvinist way is a stiff upper lip. Well, my friends, that is not the way of Jesus who wept over the grave. And then in Matthew 27, verse 46, Jesus cries on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In a moment of dereliction, in a moment of apparent desertion, Jesus cries in anguish before his heavenly Father. He grieves over sin. He grieves over death. He grieves over failed attempts in ministry. And he rejoices in the good work of his disciples. You see, as we can see in these Bible verses throughout the course of 
Jesus' ministry, he experienced the full range of sinless human emotions. He experienced love, joy, anger, sorrow. That is because he is fully God and fully man. But if we had to pinpoint one word that described the emotional life of Jesus, perhaps it would be this word in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, that Jesus had compassion. Indeed, the great Victorian preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon, when preaching on Matthew 9, says this, if you would sum up the whole character of Christ, it might be gathered into this one sentence, he was moved with compassion. This one word summarizes the heart of Jesus for his people, and therefore must characterize the people of God. As Jesus is compassion for the lost, for his people, so should we. And so in our text this morning, we see that the compassion of Jesus is displayed in his heart for the kingdom, for his sheep, and for the work of missions. First, we see in verse 35 that the compassion of Jesus is displayed in his heart for his kingdom. In verse 35, we have a summary of the ministry of Jesus. Look again. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Now, this passage actually parallels a similar one at the end of Matthew 4. Turn with me there very briefly in Matthew 4. These two passages provide a bookend of the section in Matthew's gospel that refers to the kingdom ministry of Christ. And in Matthew 4... Verses 23 and following, we read, Jesus went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And so his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those who were afflicted with diseases and pains, those who were oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Now, just as a parenthesis here, as you read your Bibles, anytime you notice repetition like that, make a note and then pay attention to what goes between. All right? Anytime you have repetition in themes in two passages, they generally serve as a bookend and they provide a lens through which for you to read that passage. And so Matthew 5 to Matthew 10 is meant to be read in light of these two summary passages regarding his kingdom ministry in Galilee. Close parenthesis, right? One of the goals of expository preaching is to help you read your Bibles, and we want to read Bibles faithfully. Well, in these two passages, we learn several important details about Christ's philosophy of kingdom work. More specifically, we see the scope, shape, substance, and significance of Christ's ministry. We see the scope of his ministry. In chapter 
9, verse 35, we are told that Jesus visited all the cities and villages. He did not discriminate, in other words. He not only went to urban centers, he went to outlying communities. He went to the city and he went to the country. He ministered in Capernaum, Chorazin, Bethsaida. He ministered throughout the region of Galilee. We might say today that he not only ministered in Orlando, he ministered in Eustis and Altamont and Kissimmee and all throughout central Florida. He did not discriminate between where there's a lot of people and only a few people. He went into the highways and hedges and proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom to all who would hear. The scope of his ministry was incredibly broad and wide-ranging. The shape of his ministry. Matthew tells us that Jesus taught in their synagogues. He did go to strategic places. He went to where his people were gathered. He went to worship services. And when he visited these synagogues, he expounded the true meaning of God's word from the law, the prophets, and the writings. As he would tell those two disciples on the Emmaus Road in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, that he would expound from the law, the prophets, and the Psalms all the things that concerned himself. See, when the incarnate word entered into human history, he proclaimed the inscripturated word. This is the only message that we have to know the truth of God. But then we see the substance of his ministry. We're told in Matthew 4, 34, that the core of Jesus' teaching as he preached through the scriptures consisted in his proclamation of the kingdom. That is, you understand, the kingdom of Christ is found everywhere the king is present. So every time you hear the word kingdom, you need to think about the king. Because a kingdom is only as strong and only as beautiful and only as glorious as the king. So where the king is... The kingdom follows. All right? And so the question of Matthew's gospel is how can I come into this kingdom so that I can know the king? Isn't it interesting that the very first word of Jesus in his public ministry is actually recorded for us in Matthew chapter 4, and Jesus says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The king had arrived, he stepped on the stage of human history, and the first word out of his mouth was, repent, for the kingdom is here. You understand, faith and repentance together serve as the gateway into the kingdom. You will never sit at the table with the king unless you've come into his kingdom through repentance. All right? That's why, as Reformed Protestants, we believe that profession of faith precedes communing with the saints. 
because you cannot sup with the king unless you personally know the king. And you cannot personally know the king unless you recognize that you have rebelled against his kingdom and you must repent and throw yourself upon his mercies that are given to you in the gospel and know that he is a good king and he wants all, all who come to him to enter into and reside in this kingdom. And he will not cast out any of you if you come in repentance and faith and trust him for your everlasting life. And then we see the significance of his ministry in chapter 9, verse 35. Everywhere Jesus went, we are told he healed every disease and every affliction. Every single person who encountered Christ was transformed. And he changed their life with a human touch. Several years ago, I was reading through the session minutes in Geneva. Okay, that's what dorky, reformed, you know, people like to do. And you understand, this is in the 16th century. I mean, these were really old session minutes. Um, And you think of Calvin as being this kind of cold, sterile, hard-hearted, mean, old, nasty reformer. In reality, he was anything but. He was at times irascible, that is true. But it was so interesting. He would meet with the elders in Geneva once a week, once a week, okay? Guys, elders, be thankful you've got monthly session meetings. Calvin wanted weekly session meetings, And when a husband and wife would have a spat or when two friends were in disagreement, you know what they actually said? They told them to repent. They gave them some counsel. They encouraged them to go to church. And then for the husband and wife, they actually said, you need to hold hands. This is Calvin. What are you talking about? Calvin doesn't hold hands. He actually said to the two guys that were in a spat, you actually need to reach out and grasp one another. There's power of of human touch, of reconciling, of being together. And there was something about Christ's encounter with those in need that transformed their lives. He came and he touched them. He touched them through and through. He changed them. He brought entire holistic redemption that changed them body and soul extraordinary encounter that Jesus did touch the untouchables of society. And so in Matthew 9, 35, we discover Jesus' heart for his kingdom. And it's summarized in these verbs. He went, he taught, he proclaimed, he healed. Why did he do this? Well, he had compassion on his people. Right? They were lepers, servants, centurions, mothers, demoniacs, friends, tax collectors, sinners, little girls, men, children, all who needed the glorious good news of the gospel of the kingdom, and Jesus went to all of them. He did not discriminate. 
The gospel is for all, any, but only those who come to Christ. Extraordinary. As you read through the gospels, you should note every single person he encounters. And he talked about rich, he talked about poor. You know, talk about young, you know, about old. How about men, you know, about women. And all of them share a common need for Christ. It's the one thing that binds every single person here today, and that is your need, your eternal need for Jesus. Now, there may be a lot of things that divide us, but the one thing that unites us is our need for Christ. And when you're united to Christ, guess what? You're united to one another, and there's more that unites us than that divides us when we're together in Christ. One of the great doctrines of the church is the communion of the saints. Next, in verse 36, we see the heart of Jesus for his sheep. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The word for compassion is only applied to Jesus in the New Testament. That interesting. It is reserved exclusively for him. It conveys a deep, heartfelt, longing, and loving kindness for his people. It's similar to, to the Old Testament word hesed, right? Which is God's covenant love, his steadfast love, his dogged stickability to his people. He's relentless in loving his own, and nothing keeps him from caring for his people. It's a deep, abiding, steadfast love. It's not schmaltzy, okay? It's not whimsical, you know, it's so fascinating. You're thinking about the nativity in July. Well, Hallmark, right, is thinking about Christmas in July. And so much of today has reduced compassion to whimsical love. And there's nothing like that in Jesus' life and ministry. It is a steadfast commitment to care for his people even to the point of death. As one commentator says, what we are to see here is not purely human pity. You know, like pity is the kind of emotion we have when we see a child in need, but we really can do very little about it. Here we see divine compassion for a troubled people, and that compassion moves him to do something about it. They are harassed and they are helpless. Internally, they do not have the resources to fix their problems. Externally, they've got arrows coming in from the outside. Outwardly, they're being persecuted. Inwardly, they are confronted with all kind of moral and theological problems. Harassed on the outside, helpless on the inside. They are like sheep 
without a shepherd. They're just aimless. They're going every which away, and they need someone to lead them, to love them, to care for them, to feed them, to serve them. More than that, this word is not only unique to Jesus, it is unique to Matthew's gospel. And every time the word compassion is used of Jesus, it leads to active care for his own. And so, for example, in Matthew 14, 14, Jesus has compassion on the hungry, and he feeds the 5,000. Again, in Matthew 15, 32, Jesus has compassion on the hungry again, and he feeds the 4,000. And then on, in Matthew 20, verse 34, Jesus has compassion on two blind men, and he heals them. His compassion identifies the plight and moves him to a solution. He cares for his own. But here in Matthew 9, we are told that Jesus has compassion because they are like sheep without a shepherd. So not only does this tell us something about our need, it tells us about the one who provides the solution. This is a very, very important metaphor throughout all the Bible. Because this description of a shepherd caring for a sheep is ascribed to God providing care for His people. And so throughout Scripture, it often describes God's relationship to Israel. Just for example, there are tons and tons of these, but let me just give you a couple of examples. In Numbers 27, 17, Moses prays that God would give Israel a man to lead them in the promised land, so that they would not be like a sheep without a shepherd. And so, in his place, God raises up Joshua to care for the people of God in Canaan. Once they get in Canaan, though, we all know things do not go well. It is crazy, as the scholars like to say. And so, the Lord brings an indictment through his prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 34. And the Lord condemns the shepherds of Israel for not feeding His people with large portions of the Word of God. And as a result, in Ezekiel 34, verses 15 and 16, Yahweh, the Lord, promises to shepherd His sheep Himself. I myself will shepherd my sheep. I myself will make them lie down. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. Right? You good for nothing elders? You good for nothing pastors? You good for nothing guys? Right? You can't do it in your own resources. Right? I will do it. I will do it to ensure that all of my people are cared for and are brought to green pastures and still waters, that they might drink from his everlasting water and feed on the eternal truth of his word. Isn't it interesting then when Jesus comes in Matthew, in John chapter 10, what does he say? I am the good shepherd, and I will lay down my life for my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I mean, he is directly echoing, not just Psalm 23, he's echoing Ezekiel 34. You see, the most Christian compassion Matthew Henry says, is compassion for souls. It is the most Christ-like. Jesus had compassion on his people because they needed a shepherd. 
Dear friends, how many of us take time to grow in our compassion for one another as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? You know, one of the great tools to unite a church is a directory. Just spend time once a week. Don't only use these cards to let the pastors pray for one another. Just get your directory out. Look at people's mugshots. And may it move you to compassion (laughs) as you pray for one another. Right? It's a wonderful tool. It's a wonderful tool to grow in your love for each other. Compassion for each other. Oh, we're so quick to render conclusions about one another. And may the, Lord, may the Lord give us a ministry of forbearance and long-sufferingness as we care for each other in the truth. In the truth. We have to draw lines. We have to teach truth. But we do so with great patience, with great care, with great compassion. And then finally, and very quickly, the heart of Jesus for his harvest. So you thought I was going to do a sermon on missions, and I was going to focus on this one. Well, you all have heard so many sermons on Matthew 9, 38, or 37, 38, that I didn't think it was as necessary. I wanted to flip this passage on its head. But hopefully it brings new light to this very famous passage in verse 37. Jesus says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The word for prayer is plural. In other words, corporate congregational prayer is one way we show the heart of Jesus for the lost. We typically read this in individualistic terms, but Jesus here is laying a Christological ground for corporate prayer. Congregational prayer is a way we extend the heart of Jesus as we care for the lost. Now, a crop of wheat needs workers to fill the barn with grain, and without the laborers, the crop cannot be reaped. The point is, there are people who are ripe for inclusion in the kingdom. The harvest belongs to the Lord. It is His harvest. And yet, in His infinite wisdom, He has called us to rely on the means of grace, right? Word, sacrament, and prayer for the building up of the church, for the salvation of the lost, and for the glory of the triune name of God. Prayer is a means through which God uses us to build his kingdom. And more than that, prayer is a prelude to revival. There has never been in the history of the church a prayerless revival. So you begin to pray, understand prayer not may, I mean, revival may not come here, it may come on the other side of the globe. I'll give you a wonderful example. In 1744, 
a group of ministers in Scotland made a two-year commitment to encourage Christians in their congregations to gather in prayer for revival. This is right at the time of Whitfield's campaign, both in America and in uh, England and Scotland. And so as opportunities and schedules allowed in the congregation, people are always busy, right? Uh, These Christians agreed to meet Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings and on the first Tuesday of every quarter for two years, for two years. Well, news began to spread throughout New England of what was happening in Scotland. So much so that two years later, in 1746, a group of Scotlands decided to continue these concerts of prayer, but this time they would commit to praying for seven years, and they would enlist the global church. Well, this petition for prayer from Scotland was sent to the New World, and 500 copies of this proposal was sent to Boston in order to distribute. One person that got one of these proposals was this kind of obscure little New England preacher named Jonathan Edwards. Edwards was so taken by the proposal that he decides to preach a sermon on the role of prayer and revival and writes a little tiny book called A Call to United Extraordinary Prayer. Edwards makes the point that prayer is necessary for the growth of the church and concentrated periods of prayer precede revival. And more than that, prayer is a way that Jesus unites his church locally, regionally, and globally. Now, what is so extraordinary, though, is that the story doesn't end like you're going to think it ends. You see, this was in 1746, and this is, this is after the high point of, Jesus, of uh, Edward's ministry in Northampton. Towards the tail end of the Great Awakening, things were not going well for Edward's. And by 1750, his congregation turns on him and kicks him out. Now he goes to serve as a missionary to Indians and then becomes president of what would become known as Princeton University, but he would die only weeks later. You see, sometimes our faithfulness can translate into defeat. But Edward's grandson would note 70 years after he writes this little prayer, despite the failed attempt of Edwards in his own congregation, this little book would be used among a group of students in England that would begin what is known today as the modern missionary movement. And at the heart of that little group of students was a guy by the name of William Carey who read Edwards' call to extraordinary prayer, and it was the catalyst that served for him to stand up to hyper-Calvinists and go into India in fulfillment of the Great Commission.
Edwards never could have foreseen how his faithfulness and his call to prayer would have been used in the life of a young man in England 70 or 80 years after his ministry. I, I doubt ministers and congregants in Scotland ever thought that their call would lead to the work of one of the great revivalist preachers of all time in Jonathan Edwards. And yet we understand throughout the history of the church, the Lord uses the prayers of his people to display his heart and his compassion for the lost. You know, what was the first thing that the disciples did in the book of Acts after the resurrection and ascension? They gathered in prayer. It's the most basic impulse of God's people who carry with them the compassion of Jesus for others. We gather in prayer. And so as you labor, dear friends, labor here in new hope, do not despair. Uh, The king of glory bends his ear to hear the heart cries of his people. As they call upon him to bring in the harvest, as they seek to build one another up, as they seek to reach out to the lost, and as they seek the glory of the triune God, as they seek to fulfill the Great Commission. And so may the Lord bless you, New Hope. May He bless your elders, your Sunday school teachers, your deacons, your missionaries, your children, your saints. May He find you faithful as you seek to show the compassion of Jesus right here in Lake County and in Eustace, right here at New Hope. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the day that you've given to us. We thank you for this extraordinary call to show the heart of Jesus as we continue the work of gospel ministry. Bless us, we pray. Forgive our sins. Draw us to Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.